Before becoming part of the Marvel Age, prototypes of characters sometimes appeared. Some prototypes included the Thing, Doctor Strange, and Magneto. But do you know when the prototypes for Aunt May and Uncle Ben first appeared? Stick around to find the answer. Hello and welcome to Fantastic Comic Fan. I am your host, R.T. Fleming, and it is my mission to help you find your next digital comic book pick from the golden age to now. I have been reading comic books for over 40 years and have never lost my passion for comic books, something I try to pass on to old and new readers. Hello and welcome back to Fantastic Comic Fan. Today is episode 6, or the first week of November. I think today's episode is a little more balanced than the past. This past week was Steve Ditko's birthday, and I wanted to do a small piece that kind of highlighted some of his other achievements in the comic industry. There's a piece on what's being added to the DC archives at the DC Comics Infinite uh, service. And finally, a look at Justice League 144 which has the secret origin of the Justice League. It's a Bronze Age special comic that I really enjoyed, and I think both old and new fans would enjoy reading the issue. I'd love to hear your comments about this episode or anything else about the podcast. You can reach me at fantasticcomicfan, all one word, gmail.com. And now let's get started with the rest of the episode. Long-term comic fans know that today is the birth date of Steve Ditko, born November 2nd, 1927. Newer fans probably have no idea who the guy is. Me, when I was growing up back in 1977 as a Bronze Age baby, I didn't know who Steve Ditko was. But I do remember the first time I saw Steve Ditko's art. Of course, I really didn't know it was Steve Ditko, I just knew I really liked the art. Hard to believe, but at one time, there was no comic book shops. They got comics at pharmacies and grocery stores. But in 1977, at the local Kmart, I saw something really cool. These little things called pocketbooks. And the first pocketbook contained Amazing Fantasy and the first six issues of Amazing Spider-Man. I didn't care that by today's standards, them little teeny tiny pages would be so hard to read as an adult. But they were in full color, and I read them things over and over again. Eventually, there were several volumes put out of the original Amazing Spider-Man. And not so long after that, there was another volume that came out on Doctor Strange. Now, these Doctor Strange comics were a lot shorter because the book at the time was from Strange Tales, which also had the Human Torch. So it started like right around 110 and went all the way through up 129 of Strange Tales. And in these issues, you got to see about everything you needed to know about Doctor Strange. There's the Ancient One, Wong, Clea, Orin Mordo, all the good villains like Nightmare, and Dormammu, you even get the Mindless Ones. About a year later, there was a second volume collecting Strange Tales 130 through 144. And those tales are just as good as the first ones. And that was my introduction to Steve Ditko. Back then, not everything that Steve Ditko did thrilled me. 
I can remember looking at his Legion of Superheroes and going, oh, so? But over the years, I've gone to appreciate Steve Ditko and everything that he's done. And still, those early issues of Amazing Spider-Man, and especially the Doctor Strange issues, wow. They still, to me, is like the best stuff you could ever get from Steve Ditko. I've grown to appreciate Steve Ditko for the stuff he did at Marvel and later at DC where he co-created Hawk and Dove, Shade the Changing Man. But what some fans, especially the new ones, ones don't know, is that Steve Ditko had a long history at the now defunct Charlton Comics. Not a lot of people have read the stuff he did at Charlton Comics, but a good chunk of that is available at the Comic Book Plus website. You can get tons of Ditko. Over the years, I've come to really like Ditko stuff, even the stuff when I was younger I wasn't quite so fond about. Now you can go and do Google Ditko, you can search Comicology or anything about Marvel Comics, even DC Comics. Find something new, find something old. Whether you're an old fan like me or somebody brand new to Ditko, you're going to find something you like. It'd be a great thing to do it for the man on his birthday, don't you think? Each month, DC Universe Infinite adds about two dozen older comics and newer comics about three months after the release date to their archives. What also distinguishes the service is the message boards covering everything DC from TV to film to comic books and everything in between. At the beginning of each month, they post what is planned for that month. So, for November, the service continues to add to the milestone line of comics like Icon 23 and Static 24 which puts those two titles at about the halfway mark in the archive process. As a huge fan of Wonder Woman, I've been thrilled to see issues from her original series that went from the Golden Age to the Bronze Age get archived. Now you can read through issue 230 without any gaps, and hopefully there are plans to add more of the run in the future. Thankfully, there's been more balance concerning the archives in the past few months. As a result, some holes in the central series are finally getting filled. For example, I didn't realize all the first run of Teen Titans had not been archived. With November, issues 23 through 26 get added. That allows all 54 issues to be read. In addition, more of the virus House of Mystery gets added, with only one more left in the series. Finally, the series has added missing issues from the 1988-1998 run of Green Arrow. Now I understand digital comics have non-fans, but where else can you usually read something like the multi-decade run of Wonder Woman. So I think these digital services add value for fans and hopefully encourage you to visit your nearby comic shop or delve into some of the digital archives. I was lucky. I discovered the joys of reading a comic book as a kid. Newer fans, it's kind of unlikely. I remember for many years there weren't kids' comics being written for kids anymore. I can remember tons of Spider-Man and Batman and other titles that there was no way I'd let a kid get their hands on. Me, I was a bronze baby. And in 1977, I was 10 years old. Back then, most comics were puny 18-ish like pages. For the most part, publishers were over their specials and oversized comics of a few years ago. Then, at least things changed at DC. First, through their 80-page, no-ed, dollar comics. 
and then the giant size format. All of a sudden, Justice League went to 34 pages, and monthly no less. We get to thank Steve Englehart for those giant JLA and Legion stories. I believe the story goes, he wanted to tell longer JLA stories, and DC wanted to accommodate the former Marvel writer. Also, DC had him for only about a year, and those comics and those detectives he also wrote were great reads back then. Those JLA stories still hold up even decades later. Which brings us to JLA 144 from 1977. See, I told you, 1977 was a year of awe and wonder for me concerning comic books. This goes a long way to explaining my fan nerd appreciation for that 70s revival of the Teen Titans. While many sneer at that particular run, like high school gym stocks left in a hamper to ripen, for me, that run were all like just hive marks. The cover of the giant JLA read an all-new 33-page spellbinder from the days before there was a JLA, reaching 30 heroes of yesteryear. Just that blur had me hooked from go. I had no idea who the white figure on the cover was. A white Martian, as it turned out. Who the heck was that gorilla thing in the baddie's hand? And was that Crypto the Super Dog? No, that was Rex the Wonder Dog. The story starts with Green Arrow, noticing some differences in the so-called origin of the original Justice League. When he goes looking for answers, both Green Lantern and Superman show him a videotape. Yeah, this was long before DVDs and digital streaming. Here, the Martian Manhunter, John Jones, from Mars narrates a long-lost case and the true origin of the team, and what an origin. First, you will get a brief origin of the Martian Manhunter himself, how he came to Earth and doomed to never return to Mars back in the year 1955. Now let me pause for a moment. By this time, Dick Dillon had been drawing the JLA for years. This is considered the satellite Justice League era for fans because they were headquartered in space after starting in a mountain headquarters at the beginning of the run. Dylan ended up drawing the title for 15 years, up to his death at age 51 in 1980. Now, after the brief origin of the Martian Manhunter, the story jumps a couple of years to 1959. And the art morphs along to match the times. Then, the United States was a country on its guard because of tensions with the Soviet Union. Sputnik the first satellite had been launched a few years ago, and there was lots of fear and paranoia in the country. Sound familiar? Combined through the writing and Dylan's art, we are magically transported to the dawn of a more realistic Silver Age. The rest of the plot involves the not-so-nice white Martians, who figured out a way to get to Earth. A still-wet-behind-the-ears blast rise to stop a fight between the Martian Manhunter and the white Martians, who ended up escaping. Gained the attention of Superman, was patrolling the eastern seaboard with Batman and Robin. They all agreed to defeat the menace of the White Martians. Here, throughout, Englehart sprinkles in dialogue that sounds like a Silver Age story. Upon hearing the White Martians, Robin pipes in, We'll help too, right, Batman? Oh boy, Martians! Calm down, youngster, comes the not-so-dark knight's reply. Can you imagine him using the word youngster with today's Batman? I think it would sound just a tad bit off. Next, 
In a brief cameo with Ray Royman, the TV detective, he suggests writing a story about the White Martians and the heroes needing help. The next day, with a huge splash page, we meet all those heroes from the cover. There's the Blackhawks, the Challengers of the Unknown, Plastic Man, Robot Man, not the one from the Doom Patrol, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, the original Vigilante, Aquaman, One Moon, Congo Bill with the Amazing Congorilla, and of course, Rex, the Wonder Dog. Again, Dylan draws these characters in a way that you get a Silver Age vibe, like Lois Lane with short hair and wearing a 50s-style dress. The various characters split into teams, and each character gets their spot in the spotlight. Englehart drams a lot in these final pages, but the story doesn't feel rushed. It does, in the end, leave you wanting more. I know, newer fans have never heard or read this done-in-one story, but you should. It makes for a fantastic read. Even if you don't even know anything about the faded characters like Rex the Wonder Dog, Englehart does a great job of filling in those blanks. For the diehard fans, this gives you an excuse to revisit an old classic. Before I wrap up, let's go back to that trivia question about Aunt May and Uncle Ben. Their prototypes appeared in Strange Tales 97 and Goodbye to Lyndon Brown, written by Stan Lee and penciled by Steve Ditko. There, Aunt May and Uncle Ben care for a young girl in a wheelchair. Now, I'm not going to spoil the twist ending, but since this issue came out in 1962, a few months before Amazing Fantasy, you can't see it as a coincidence. However, it would take an Einstein metaverse genius to retcon the strange tales story with the Spider-Man mythos. Well, that's it for today's podcast. Again, I would love to hear from you, fantastic comic fan, at gmail.com. Remember, new episodes every Wednesday. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and I hope to see you next time.